The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 45 Neither Brave Man Nor Coward Two charges of kidnapping, zero convictions. Two charges of sexual assault, zero convictions. One charge of criminal damage to property, zero convictions. One charge of larceny, zero convictions. One charge of obstructing government, zero convictions. Four charges of assault, two convictions. After Canton Police Detective Marty Boten and lead detective on the case David Ayers this interview with Donna Tompkins' boyfriend at the time of her death, Rod Franciscovich, instead of following up with the additional double homicide suspects, Donna's estranged husband John Tompkins, whom Donna had been going through a grueling divorce with, not to mention the FBI's estimate that of the female murder victims for whom the relationship to their offenders was known, 36.5% of them were murdered by their husbands or boyfriends. Neither trust officer David Haynes, who was not only Donna's boss at the National Bank of Canton, but who was also said in rampant rumors about town that the ex-lover had been having a marital and adulterous affair with Donna up until the time of her death, and additionally whom had discovered the fire in Donna's apartment on the morning of January the 13th, 1993. Nor Terry Haynes, ex-boyfriend and boss of Donna's, at her part-time job at the local Elks Lodge, whom it was said had been harassing and stalking Donna for weeks and months leading up to that fateful day nor any other names, particularly men, married men, and their jealous spouses alike, as the attention of the detectives boomeranged back around on the prime suspect, a troubled local furniture delivery man named Donald Bull, who may have been having a secret relationship with Donna of his own. This boomerang occurred the moment a computerized criminal history inquiry was conducted on Donnie, re-indicating in their investigative minds that Donnie, due to his criminal history, was most certainly guilty of the death of mother and three-year-old daughter, Justine, whose remains had been discovered on a charred pull-out sofa bed Donnie Bull had sold and delivered to Donna on Halloween of 92. As the search history was printed out and typed up, what have you, and it made its way into the case file, it essentially buried that last summary interview report with Rod Franciscovich and a sort of magnetism instantaneously realigned the entire homicide task force directly in Donald Bull's direction, and it was coming right at him like a getaway freight train. Donnie was the prime suspect for some time now, after all, and his portrait had been nearly entirely rendered as the culprit to fit the scene of the gruesome misdeed. But now it was time to paint in the details of that background 
that scene as investigators pondered what critical focal point they clearly illustrate in that said background, one which might certainly state a poignant message within the context of the tragic demise of Donna and Justine. And it was decided upon to concentrate on the ring, rather, the rings. One ring found on the kitchen counter of Donna's burnout apartment, and a second ring, which had been found in Donnie's possession, a golden surface of which to reflect and illuminate a dark passage, of which when lit might provide the state's attorney, Ed Danner, that avenue he so desperately needed to wrap up this case, and seal not only an indictment, but hopefully a solid conviction. So on March 3rd, 1994, Sergeant David Ayers met with Donna's co-worker at the Elks and her sole confidant, Iona Price, at the Canton Police Department to speak with her once more for the purpose of confirming whether or not Donnie Bull had ever mentioned to her in the past if he had ever found any rings or any other property while working at Wright's Furniture Store in Canton with her husband, Mike. No, Iona said. No, Donnie never mentioned any such thing. And when Sergeant Ayers revealed that the ring had been found in a Bailey's liquor box belonging to Donnie, while investigators searched the bedroom of his girlfriend Rochelle Hillmeyer's home, whom she had been sharing with Donnie, Iona's eyes lit up, and she stated boldly, I do recognize that ring. As mentioned, the ring Sergeant Ayers presented for Iona was gold, with a white stone and two small red garnets attached to each side. This was the ring Donna wore, stated Iona. Sergeant Ayers then spoke with her husband, Mike Price, as he arrived to the department. Mike stated that although he worked with Donnie, he never knew of Donnie finding any items in the furniture, adding, If Donnie ever found any rings, he sure didn't show me. Now this is where things get a little fuzzy. As Sergeant Ayers later typed up his summary report on his conversation with Mike, he claimed that Mike stated when asked, No, I didn't know that Charlotte's class ring had been recovered in Donnie's things, but if I had known Donnie was taking it or took it, I would not have allowed it. Though this statement surely does not make any sense as of this moment, bear with me, ladies and gentlemen, and things will soon come into focus, as clearly as something potentially nonsensical, yet strategically placed, just might. On an additional summary report, this time typed up by Detective Bowton, the following narrative was stated. On the above date and time, this officer met with Terry Haynes of the Canton Police Department to determine if he could identify some woman's jewelry connected with this incident. The responding officer went to the evidence vault and got a brown paper sack identified as evidence tag number 6414 and three other evidence sacks marked number 6628, 6629, and 6630. The RO first opened the sack marked number 6414 and handed T. Haynes a woman's ring with the initials on the top flat surface. He immediately identified it as Donna Tompkins' ring and said he had purchased it at Reichardt's Jewelry in town. T. Haynes stated that he and D. Tompkins were riding his motorcycle one day and she lost her ring, which was given to her by her mother, and it had her initials on it and it was very special to her. T. Haynes stated that she was very upset about losing the ring and he later replaced the ring for her and then mentioned that D. Tompkins always had two rings on during the time they were together. He described the other ring she wore as a gold band with a white center stone and mentioned she always had this ring on. R.O. proceeded to allow T. Haynes to view the other two rings 
and he stated he had never seen the ring's marked number 6629 or 6630. When T. Haynes viewed the evidence sack marked number 6628, he looked very closely at the ring and commented he was pretty sure the ring he was viewing was D. Tompkins' ring. T. Haynes was not informed where the rings had been collected by the officer and no further information was provided by T. Haynes. T. Haynes did mention that if she would have lost this ring, she would have been quite upset like before when she lost the initial ring and would have probably told someone about her loss. The investigation will continue. R.O. then returned all the evidence to the vault. Detective Bowden stated that he had not told Terry Haynes where the rings had been found. But ladies and gentlemen, for the sake of clarity and focus, let me tune you in. The gold ring with the white stone was discovered in Donnie Bull's belonging. However, the ring Terry, or rather T. Haynes, had referred to as the initial ring, had been found among ash and char on Donna Tompkins' kitchen counter of her burned-out apartment. It was summarized that Donnie, had he been a culprit of the murders and the fire, had not stolen the initial ring along with the ring with the white stone, because having her initials engraved on it would have made it too easy to identify as her own if found in his possession. Nonetheless, the white stone ring presented to Terry had indeed, according to reports, been discovered in that Bailey's container at Rochelle's home by the Illinois State Police Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer. But the initial ring, Charlotte's ring, despite Officer Ayers informing Mike Price that this ring in particularly had been found in Donnie's possession to Mike's surprise, actually was not. Now, back on January 20th, 1994, Detective Bowden typed up the following report which helps clarify more. On the above date and time, this officer went to Canton High School to view the school yearbook for the year 1938. The listed ring above, class ring 1938, gold and black in color, with inscribed initials, CJH, was being retained at the Canton Police Department, and the responding officer noticed that the ring had the initials CJH, and it was a Canton class ring for the year of 1938, this ring was a woman's ring, and the RO located a female in the senior class of 1938 with the name of Charlotte Hughes. RO checked with several secretaries at the school and was informed that Charlotte Hughes might possibly be Charlotte Wright. RO photocopied the yearbook with Charlotte Hughes' photo and returned the yearbook to school officials. Now that we know who Charlotte is, or rather was, we can go on to question why Mike Price was so shocked to hear that her ring was found in Donnie Bull's possession. Though in actuality, it was not. Sergeant Ayers had misled Mike, which of course, is not unusual during criminal investigation interrogations, but I'd say a rather peculiar approach when interviewing witnesses. And to add to the odd nature of this ordeal, I ask, why or how would Mike have supposedly prevented Donnie from taking the ring? This statement only makes sense in a few specific contexts and scenarios. For one, that Donnie had stolen it from Wrights after discovering it in a couch cushion. Or, that Donnie had stolen it from the Price residence. Or lastly, that Donnie had stolen it in the presence of Mike from another location altogether, such as from Donna's home, off her kitchen counter, or off the hand of her deceased body before consuming it in flame. Now, none of these circumstances seem possible, leaving me to wonder 
what Mike was trying to say, and if Mike had actually ever made this nonsensical statement that found its way into Sergeant Eric's reports at all. Moving along, rolling time back a bit further to June 7, 1993, a Monday, upon which day Sergeant Ayers contacted Donna's estranged husband concerning the other ring, the 14 karat gold ring with the white stone and red garnets that was actually found in Donnie's possessions. John was quick to provide the detective with a portrait of the Tompkins family, in which displayed, flanked by family, fully donned in typical's late 80s rural Illinois attire, Donna's right hand, and on it, two rings. John had said that he felt this might be the same ring. As Ayers examined the picture closely, the ring appeared identical to the detective. Taking possession of the photograph for evidence, Sergeant Ayers then showed the image and the ring to Donna's sister, Miss Susan Amaguchi, and Susan felt that she had seen Donna with a ring like that one, and later found additional photos of Donna wearing the supposed ring. However, Ayers typed up in his summary report, the ring, not a ring, the ring, after Susan provided the pictures to the detective two days later, on June 9th. Sergeant Ayers then spoke with another sister of Donna's, Anne Smiley, and the detective fully described the ring to her over the phone, and Anne immediately responded, saying Donna had worn a ring like that for several years. Anne also found photos of Donna wearing the ring, as Ayers typed it up, when she sent the photographs to the detective via USPS. Sergeant Ayers next went to Reichardt Jewelry Store in downtown Canton and spoke with the jeweler, Mr. Ricketts. Mr. Ricketts told the detective that this ring was custom made and would not have been purchased from a store as is. Mr. Ricketts then stated that the two red garnets had been added on, stating that it would have cost around $250 to gather the components to make a ring of equal quality and value to that one. Sergeant Ayers also spoke with Donna's co-worker at the National Bank, Joanne Folk, who positively identified the ring as Donna's. Joanne added that Donna wore the ring every day and never complained that the ring was stolen or lost. However, Joanne couldn't recall at this time if the ring was worn during the week of Donna's death, but she was emphatic that Donna wore the ring all the time. Lastly, Sergeant Ayers showed the ring to another co-worker at the bank, Miss Mary Munson, and Mary also identified the ring as Donna. When Sergeant Ayers delivered the portraits of the Tompkins family to the Illinois State Police Technical Services Division in Springfield, they attempted to enlarge the ring area and possibly use a computer to enhance the results, to be used as evidence, given the case against Donnie ended up before a jury of his peers.
Traveling forward from here, on August 8, 1993, Special Agent Kenneth Kedzer debriefed a confidential source, who stated that he had recently had several conversations with Donnie Bull in jail, but that Donnie had not been speaking much about the murderers at the Tompkins. The source did, however, advise the agent that Donna had once visited Donnie at his apartment located near the railroad tracks on 5th Avenue in Canton. According to Donnie, the source stated on or around Halloween of 92, Donna had showed up in a Mickey Mouse Halloween costume she wanted to show him. The source mentioned that Donnie and Mike Price had stolen six reclining chairs from the Wright's Furniture Store on one occasion. Donnie had said to the source that on one occasion, Canton Detective Marty Bowden had been doing an interview at the furniture store while they, Donnie and Mike, had been loading the stolen recliners onto a truck. Donnie said that Bowden had been speaking with a co-worker named Andrea at the store. Donnie had also stated, according to the source, that Donnie and Mike had been together in the Wright's furniture truck on the day after the Tompkins fire, when Donnie and Mike had driven by the Tompkins residence and had stopped in front of the home. Donnie said that he had stopped the truck as he had observed some kind of object lying in the yard. According to Donnie, he and Mike crossed a police barricade line and walked into Donna's yard. But they were stopped by some type of security guard and were requested to go back onto the other side of the barricade. The source then stated that Donnie had told him that he was only driving by the scene of the fire out of curiosity. In closing, the confidential source advised that Donnie had told him if the police put enough pressure on Mike Price or David Nell, they might say that Donnie had killed the Tompkins. Adding that, Donnie, however, did not elaborate as to why he made that statement. The source also mentioned that Donnie had recently changed his story about the Tompkins' payment for the couch that Donnie had sold her, adding that Donnie had stated that all the money had been left in the mailbox. But according to the source, Donnie had told him in the past that only half the money had been placed in the mailbox. Now, the topic of furniture, along with its relation to Donnie as a criminal character, along with Mike Price as co-conspirator and witness, have been rendered into the portrait with more beleaguering detail. On September 22, 1993, Fulton County Sheriff Dan Daly met with Harold E. Smith and his attorney, Hugh Toner, Donnie's former attorney, I might add, at 3.05 p.m. at the Peoria County Jail. The purpose of the meeting was for Sheriff Daly to discuss with Harold the details of a conversation Harold had with Donnie Bull. Daly had previously been told by Hugh Toner that Harold wished to discuss certain matters with the sheriff. Harold stated that when he was released from prison in November of 1991, Shortly thereafter, he began to frequent Bruin Q Tavern in Canton, Illinois, where he met Donnie Bull. Harold stated that he was introduced to Donnie by Harold Crozer, saying that a short time later, he realized that Harold Crozer had told Donnie that he, Harold Smith, was a convicted murderer and had been hired to kill people. Harold stated that during September of 92, Donnie came to him and asked if he would kill a bitch for him. Later in the month, Donnie had asked Harold if he would kill her for $5,000.
In October of 92, Donnie asked Harold if a person were to kill somebody and then burn the person's home. Would the fire burn the body so that the cause of death could not be determined? Harold responded to Donnie by stating that if there was smoke in the lungs, the authorities would know that the death did not occur before the fire. On November 9, 1992, Harold had another conversation with Donnie. This conversation took place at the Suburban Lounge in Canton. Donnie stated to Harold at the time, You don't have the heart, fuck you. I can kill the sons of bitches myself. The date of November 9, 1992 stuck in Harold's mind because he recalled that his driver's license was suspended on November 11, 92, and that the conversation had to have occurred two days prior. Okay, pause. By November 9th, Donnie Bull had already made acquaintances and possibly more with Donna Tompkins. And if the bitch Donnie was referring to was in fact Donna, what reason would he have had had to not only have killed her, but to commit the act himself and destroy the evidence with the fire, let alone hold such disdain for a woman he, according to all sources, truly admired. It is possible someone had the motive to put out a contract killing on Donna and sought Donnie's help as a hired hand, or simply someone who might put him in touch with the right hitman, be it Mr. Harold Smith, and if so, not only why, but who had the motive. And what would that motive be? Sex? Money? Revenge? And again, who in Donna's life had possibly been motivated by such factors as sex, money, and revenge? Rod? Terry? David? John? What about the family and associates of the prior named? Seething jealous wives? A red-handed financial officer caught with his pants down? A family on the brink of losing its empire? Or were such words spoken by lips loosened up with drink, just words, nonsense, bar banter, locker room talk per se. Or had deals been made, sentence reductions and the like? Harold continued on, sat next to his attorney in the Peoria County Jail, and stated to Fulton County Sheriff Dan Daly that he could recall hearing about the fire and deaths while an inmate in the Illinois Correctional Center. Harold said he immediately thought Donnie Bull might be involved in the fire and deaths because of his earlier conversations with Donnie. Again, what would have been Donnie's motive to kill Donna back on November 9th of 1992? Just days after, Donna had showed up at his apartment on 5th Avenue to show him her feminine, petite, and undoubtedly adorable interpretation of Mickey Mouse, of which she had chosen as a costume for Halloween of that year. Looking back, Stated in the prior episode that rumors had been spun that Donnie and John Tompkins were friends. Again, this has yet to been substantiated, but nonetheless, it is worth a thought. 
Harold stated that each of the four conversations he had with Donnie concerning the killing of persons and the setting of a fire occurred at Dots Lounge, the Suburban, or Bruin Q in Canton. Harold said that he was unable, however, to recall if any other persons were present during the aforementioned conversations, which also renders these statements of Harold's unsubstantiatable. Harold told the sheriff that Donnie Bull associated with the following individuals when asked. Mike Price, Bruno Price, Paul Collins, Ronnie Henderson, Harold Crozer, and occasionally Lance Finley. Harold then stated that he recalled that in March or April of 1993, Paul Collins commented that authorities might get Donnie Bull on the murder case. Harold also told the sheriff that in 1992, Donnie was dating Jim Brown's sister, stating that he did not know the woman's name, but that Jim Brown lived in Canton and was paroled to Canton from Texas. Sheriff Daly asked Harold what he wanted in return for the information. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Harold then stated that he was being sentenced in federal court on 9-21-93 and knew that Daly could not help in the federal case, but further said that he had two drug charges in Fulton County and that it would be appreciated if the sheriff could give him some help. And when asked how much help Harold would be looking for, Harold replied, whatever you think the information is worth. Sheriff Daly then explained to Harold that he was worried about his credibility and that he would require a polygraph examination to determine his truthfulness. Harold agreed to the exam, but the results are nowhere to be located, nor is there any apparent evidence that the test had actually taken place. So there you have it. Nothing comes for free, tit for tat, and the interview commenced with yet a more damning light, or rather shadow, draped across the profile of Donnie Bull's rendered portrait. January 3rd, 1994, Detective Marty Boten typed up a summary report stating that, at the above date and time, this officer and Sergeant David Ayers went to the Barn Cafe, which is just south of Canton, to speak with a confidential source about this incident. The confidential source is referred to in this report as CS. The following is a summary of the interview, which was conducted at 0929 hours on 1393. According to the CS, he was a cellmate with D. Bull, and they shared the same cell. The CS mentioned that D. Bull was not very talkative at first, but then started talking with him more. The CS stated D. Bull, and then the report ends there. No continuing sheet, but one question I want to ask out of many. Jeff Grigsby, is there more to the story than we had discussed in our prior interview? Now, let's move along to Trial Exhibit 13, as transcribed by Canton Police Department Secretary Amy J. Emery on March 30, 1994. Dispatch. Canton Police Department, can I help you? Chris Chester. Uh, yes, let me talk to Sergeant Ayers, please. This is Chris Chester. 
Dispatch. Hold on, please. Music plays while on hold. David Ayers. Sergeant Ayers, can I help you? Chester. Hey, so you ready to go to the parole board for me or what? Ayers. Laughs. What did you do for me? Chester. Well, tell me if this sounds pretty familiar. You got, um, you got a recorder or a pen and paper ready? Ayers. I've got what? Chester. Uh, anything to write this down? What I'm getting... Ayers. Yeah, um... Chester, what I'm getting ready to say. Ayers. Yep. Chester. Okay. Does an ashtray in bed sound, you know, any ring of a bell or anything like that? Maybe make it look like an accident? Ayers. Well, you tell me. Chester. Okay, here we go. Okay, um, they, he, didn't get there until about midnight, and she was already drunk, okay? Ayers. Uh-huh. Chester. So the keys were left in the mailbox. So he just lets himself in and everything. And uh, she starts saying that um, she don't want to see him no more. Blah, blah, blah. His friends. She don't like the friends he hangs around with. He smokes pot. Then, you know, she was bitching and everything and he's drinking. She's drunk. So, you know, he's... He's... It went like this. We're sitting in my... We're sitting in my cell, okay? When I move in there, you know, he's like, bam. You know how you get out of Menard? I told him I won a lawsuit, you know. They shipped me in the medium joint and everything. He's like, yeah, that's cool and everything. I said, how much time did you get? And he said, eight years. I said, damn, they framed you for that murder, huh? He's like, no, not yet. I said, well, they've been questioning me about that. He's like, oh, you ain't got nothing to worry about. I said, why? Why are you saying that? He said, you know, we talked in county jail. I said, well, not really, man. Um, you didn't really say nothing to me. He said, let's put it this way. Uh, Fulton County, they're on some dumb shit. They make up their own laws, do whatever they want to do. I said, well, why are you saying that, you know? You know they tried to frame me on some dumb shit too. And he said, um, well, they're trying to frame me on that murder. I said, well, dude, um, I was free. They questioned me about the murder. I was just getting ready to move to Florida when the house caught fire. He's like, yeah, you know, an ashtray in the bed started the fire. I said, well, how do you say that? And he said, it was an accident. And I said, oh, I don't know, man. I heard it was a murder. He said, yeah, they were dead before the fire started. I said, oh, man, boy. Well, I don't want to hear nothing, man. Because, um, if I had to testify against you or something like that. He said, well, I know you ain't no stool pigeon or nothing. I said, yeah. So he went all into it like this. I got it all written down. To make a long story short, though, they started arguing. He sat on top of her and put his fingers over her mouth and her inner nose, suffocating her. He started panicking, wiped the fingerprints down, did the same thing to her daughter, and uh, wiped the fingerprints down. Thought he forgot something. He left, went to his car that was parked by the fucking junkyard. Thought he forgot something, went back, was afraid that, you know, some soil samples or something on his shoes or some shoe prints. That's when he put the ashtray in the bed and set the place on fire and then left. Ayers. Why did he kill the girl? Chester. Oh, she didn't want to see him no more. She... Ayers. No, the little one. Chester. Uh, I don't know. We didn't... I didn't ask him, you know. 
I just asked him, you know, what, did you do the same thing in there? He's like, yeah. I said, why'd you do it? He said, we were arguing over my friends and she didn't want, you know, sleep with me no more. She was drunk and talking crazy. He said he blacked out and came to and he was on top of her. Ayers. So he never said how he started the fire then. Chester. Uh, with a lighter. That's all he said he did. He set a blanket on so it could be quieter. Ayers. Uh, I don't know. Some of it ain't exactly matching up here, Chris. Chester. Um, huh. Ayers. Is that as detailed as he got? Chester. That's about, well, here's here. Here's what I've got. Here's what I wrote down. I'll tell you exactly what I wrote down. Long pause. Hands over face. Suffocated her, arguing over habits and friends. Wants to stay. Wants to stop seeing him. Wants to see someone else. They start to argue. He starts shaking her. Says he blacked out. Comes to. Hands over her face. Panics. Wipes off fingerprints off of everything. Did the same thing to daughter. Starts worrying. Left early. Came back early in the morning. Thought he forgot something. Uh... Put an ashtray in the bed to burn the place to make it look like an accident. Ran to car park by the junkyard. Said he was drunk. Slept in car because there was no other place he could stay for now. Had been in the house several times in the past. Met her by delivering a couch from Wright's furniture. That's how they met when he delivered some furniture from Wright's. From Wright's, uh, furniture store. Ayers. Uh-huh. Chester. Then started sleeping with her. Then used to leave her keys in the mailbox. That's how he got in whenever he wanted to. Ayers. She... used to go there? What? Is he still saying he was screwing her? Chester. Yeah, yeah. Ayers. And she always left the keys in the mailbox. Chester. In the mailbox. Ayers. Huh. So he said he left and then came back later. Chester. Uh-huh. Well, see, he wiped all the fingerprints down. He said he wiped everything down and left, but thought he forgot something, and he went back. Said he didn't forget nothing. He said, um, just in case. And soil samples and anything like that on the stairway or anything like that. He said he set the place on fire so they couldn't, you know, if there was any handprints or fingerprints on her face or anything like that. Ayers. Yeah. What stairway did he say? Chester. Uh, didn't. I didn't get into it. Because we went to... Well, this happened. I moved in about 8, 8 in the morning. Then he started talking about, you know, Canton and everything like that. Then, you know, we got into this, started talking about this. Then they called Chow. Then some lieutenant came up to him and said, I was state, going to be a state witness against him. Well, he started snapping about that. And I cleared all that up. I told him, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Blah, 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 blah. Err. So the lieutenant told him that. Chester. <laughs> yeah. Err. Did you tell the lieutenant down there that? Chester. No, I didn't tell nobody, Ayers. Um, uh, Ayers. Because I got a call from David Watkins today, and, uh, I talked to the warden today. Chester. Um, huh. Ayers. And they were kind of pissed off at me. They said you'd been telling lieutenants and everybody down there what you're doing. Chester. No, that's bullshit. Um, see, dude, I'm telling you what's up right now. I'm telling you, a lieutenant went to my celly and, um, to, uh, to bowl. And we're in the chow hall. And there's a, I said, that's pretty, I told him, I won a lawsuit for 25 grand and got a medium joint transfer anywhere. And this is my third choice. 
What it is, uh, a lieutenant went to my celly and told him you're under investigation as a state witness or some, some crap like that. Okay, then, um, then, um, uh, yesterday about 2.30, I got to go to the yard, right? Ayers, mm-hmm. Chester, they called me in off the yard, talking about they found a knife in my house or some shit. That's where it all came from. Ayers, what I was told today was that you told them Bull had a knife. Chester, oh uh, yeah, hell, it wasn't my knife. I'm taking a lie detector test. Ayers, no, I mean... But that's how it all started. They said that you came and said the bull's got a knife. and got you both put in seg or something. Chester. Oh, no, no. Ayers. Well, that's what, uh, you know, really that's what I was told today. Chester. They ain't said nothing. They said that it was, uh, they called me in off the yard, so they found it in our house. Ayers. So what's the relationship with you and bull right now, then? Chester. Oh, uh, it's straight. They, you know, uh, he, somebody planted the knife in our house. I don't know if it was him, or one of his biker brothers, or, uh, whatever, I don't know. Ayers. So he's not mad at you. Chester. Uh, not as far as, no, not, not as far as I know, but, um, Ayers. Yeah, what happens to you guys now, when you get back to your cell? Chester. Uh, we're, you know, we're straight. Ayers. No, I mean, are you still in seg? Chester. Yeah, yeah. Ayers. How long do they leave you in there? Chester. Uh, I don't know. Ayers, but when you get out of there, you guys will be back in the same cell? Chester, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's possible. Ayers, but, but maybe not? Chester, uh, anything the state, you know, it's, it's up to the, it's up to the state. But I can't, you know, I can't say that. Ayers, yeah, according to what I was being told by the, um, by Watkins and the ordinate, that you ratted out, Bull, now you guys are at odds. Chester, that I ratted out Bull, and we're at odds. Ayers. Yeah. Chester. Dude, the knife was found in my drawer, according to the tickets. Ayers. Okay. Chester. And, um, I was on yard, and that, that just ain't, uh, no, that ain't, that ain't going, huh? Mm. Ayers. So who do, uh, so who do you think knows about what you're doing for Chester? Whoever you called, Wilbur Watkins called and told Ayers. Well, he told me that you told three lieutenants down there. Chester. Yesterday? No. I told, I told a captain and lieutenant yesterday. And they brought me to SEG. I said, listen, that ain't my knife. I said, that's pretty fucking stupid. Well, we ain't going to go into that. I said, listen. I said, um, I called him in my cell. I said, you got to get up with the warden. I said, the warden knows about this. I'm down here to help on a murder investigation. They said, okay, okay. There was Lieutenant Meadows and, um, Lieutenant, um, Ayers. Yeah, Meadows was the one. Chester. And Lieutenant, um, she's Internal Affairs, or, um, Lieutenant. There's only two of them, but, um, that was last night. That was after they found the knife. Ayers. Okay, yeah. They made it sound like it was before. Chester. No, that was after they found the knife. About three hours after they found the knife. Ayers. Okay, so as far as you know then, if they put you and Bull back in the cell, everything will be cool there. Chester. Oh yeah, everything's, everything's straight. Ayers. Okay. Chester. You know, it could, it'd have, uh, I'd like to, on, um, uh, man, like on, like on some, see, I think, I think Bull, or one of his brothers, because I'm, I, uh, I'm telling you the truth. 
Lieutenant came up to a man about an hour after we, uh, about an hour, okay? I'm in the cell at 8 o'clock. We're talking all morning. They called Chow at 1. We're sitting in lunch. I got up and kick it with some other people, right? He gets up, snapping. I want him out. I know, I know he's a witness against me. Uh, they're using him as a witness against me. Ayers, who's saying that? Chester. This is what Bull's saying to, um, uh, to, um, another lieutenant. And I walk up and I said, what? What's going on? He's like, oh, I'll talk to you when we get back in the cell. I'm like, cool, okay. We go back to the cell. I said, what's going on? Oh, they're saying you're testifying against me. I said, what do you mean testifying against you? Boy, you testified against me. I said, listen, you already got your eight years. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I didn't testify against you. He's like, yeah, I think they're just getting to us, you know? Northside and uh, bikers to fight. We start fighting. Everybody is going to fight. And um, they're going to ship us all out of here. I said, well, um, you don't have to worry about that because... You know, I didn't testify against you. You went to jury trial. He's like, yeah, that's pretty stupid. So that way, you know, that was cleared up. But, um, errors. Okay, so this stuff you're telling me here. He he actually told you this stuff, right? Chester. Yep, in the morning. Errors. If I took you and had you take a polygraph, you would pass? Chester. Yeah. Errors. You sure? Chester. Positive. Errors. Well, well, I'll see if I can get you guys put back in the same cell and see if you can hear some more stuff, okay? Chester, inaudible. Eric, because a lot of this stuff, actually, I need some more stuff that wasn't out in the paper. And Chester, yeah, Eric's in common knowledge. I need something that he says that pretty much only I know or the guys involved down there, Chester, or he knows. Eric's, yep. Chester. Okay, and, um, Ayers, did, uh, does he talk pretty freely to you about it? Chester, yeah, he, uh, everything's, you know, everything's straight after I told him I was under, you know, they questioned me about where I was, and I told, that's when I went to Florida, you know? He knows that I've been to prison four times, and, Ayers, but you could get more detail out of him, in particular about the fire? Chester, uh, okay. This is, this would be, uh, it'll be, it'll be perfect. Look, I'm going to go back when I go back in and tell him, listen, I just got off the phone with my lawyer, you know. They're going to fingerprint the knife. It was some bullshit-ass plastic knife or some fucking crazy shit, I don't know. What I ain't seen, it was like I said, I was on the yard. They came in and I said, they came in and said, shakedown, you know. They found a knife on the shakedown. But I'm going to tell him, look, I called my lawyer and, uh, you know, we both agreed to take a polygraph test because he says it ain't his. And I know for a fact I didn't have no knife in the cell because that would have been fucking stupid. Ayers, yeah. Chester, you know? Ayers, uh, yeah. I can't do anything for you if you get in trouble down there, you know? Chester, oh, I know. It was no doubt. It was, it was no part of mine. Ayers, they're going to tell me to take a hike here if they get a bunch, you know? Chester. Uh-huh. Ayers. I, uh, you almost did it today, but I think, but, uh, Chester, I'm going to tell you like this, you know? I called my lawyer. My lawyer got a hold of the warden down here. And then, um, there's nobody present on the shakedown, and the shakedown was bullshit. And, you know, 
So they they just given us, telling us next time we do it, uh, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get hung. Some, somewhere I can cover my ass where, you know, where it don't look too, too obvious, you know? There's, yep, yep. Also, see if you can find out if he took anything out of there. Chester, okay. There's, any of, uh, the people's belongings. Chester, yeah. Heirs. What he did with them. So you think he was parked by the junkyard? Chester. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. His fucking car. His car fucking, uh, what was the name of it? Uh, he said the one with the ragged, with the, he said the one with the fucking raggedy fence next to them, uh, fucking brick apartments right down the road from Ayers. Borks. And he may be a little more particular where he parked if he, if he wants to tell you that, you know. However, you can bring it up, but, uh, so what, what did he say? What time he left or what time? Chester. It was about, he said it was about two. Hold on. About two in the morning, three in the morning. Ayers. That's when he left for Donna's or that's when he got there? Chester. No, when he left. He said, he said he got there about one. Left? I don't, he didn't really go into detail what time she died and everything. He said he left about two or three. Then came back. Then I don't know. I didn't get into that part where he, what time the fire started. The exact time he started the fire. Ayers, you don't know what time it was then. Chester, I figured if I get the exact spot the fire was started and, um, Ayers, you don't know what time he went back. Chester, no, he, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to, uh, you know, ask stupid questions. Ayers, yep. Chester, you know? Ayers, yep. Chester, I'll, I'll get one time, you know, one time. Exact fire, exact the fire was started, and what time exactly he showed back up, and exactly where he started the fire, and you know what, and what was stolen, and just more detail. Harris, yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe if you could make up some things that, that you did, maybe he'll talk about what he did. I don't know, however, you think you need to do it. Chester, yeah, I can, but, uh, whatever happened... Somebody managed to, uh, I don't know who it was, either administration or somebody, man, put that knife in our cell. I don't know what's going on. Ayers, huh. So do you think you and Bull are cool right now? Chester, yeah, we holler about, yeah. I told him, man, I'm going to call my lawyer and get us out of this and everything because nobody was there on the shakedown. It was all bullshit. The knife was just... It's bullshit, man. The administrator's here. The warden knows that I've... The warden knows that I'd have to be a damn idiot to have a fucking knife in the house. Ayers. Yeah. Chester, you know? Ayers. Like I said, you get caught with stuff like that. And they're just going to tell me to take a hike and... Chester. Oh, I dude. Ha. <laughs> no, I ain't... I ain't no... I'm not that dumb. Ayers. Well, Chester. In the first place. Ayers. Okay, well, let me call the warden and see where she... How she looks at this. Chester. Okay. Ayers. And, uh, see what we can do. Chester. Okay. Ayers. Alright. Chester. Okay. I'll hire you in, uh, whenever. Ayers. Yeah, keep me updated when you hear something else. Chester. Okay. Ayers. Okay. Chester. Okay. Ayers. Thanks, Chris. Chester. Okay. Ayers. Bye. The phone hangs up.
the Canton Daily Ledger's 82nd year in business, and its number 74th publication. The headline across the top of the page of the papers being stocked in vending machines at every service station in town at that darkest hour on Tuesday, December 28, 1993, just two weeks before the first anniversary of that early morning fire at 365 South First Avenue. Arrest is pending in Tompkins' case. And by John Froling of the Daily Ledger, a prom suspect currently being held in state prison will be arrested soon for the killing of a Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter last January, Canton Police Chief Mike Elam said today. He did not provide the age, gender, or any other information about the prisoner. We will eventually make an arrest. Right now we're reviewing the evidence, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. At some point, we'll be turning it over to the state's attorney, Elam said. He declined to comment about the evidence and the crime scene. According to a press release, the arson was an attempt to cover up the deaths. But Elam declined to comment about the cause of death, but added, they did not die of natural causes. Elam noted the lack of manpower. A task force was formed by the Canton Police detectives to use more expertise and resources. Canton Police Department has been the lead agency in the investigation, Due to pure geography, Elam said. Illinois State Police, based in Macomb, Canton Fire Arson Investigators, Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agents, and the State Fire Marshal all participated in the task force. And we're presently utilizing other resources, Elam said. Noting assistance has been expanded during the past few days. According to the press release, additional evidence recently has been obtained and examined by the task force and personnel from Morton and Springfield Crime Labs. These new items are expected to assist in the successful completion of this lengthy investigation. What we have determined to be successful completion is the arrest and conviction of the individuals involved in the deaths of Donna and Justine Tompkins and the subsequent arson, the press release said. The prime suspect is incarcerated at the Illinois Department of Corrections and poses no threat to the Canton area or any other community, the press release said. At this point, no one is qualified for the reward of $5,000 offered by the National Bank of Canton for providing information leading to the arrest and conviction of a suspect in the case. Elam noted, basically, this suspect was developed by the task force. We're still hoping to get more calls from anyone who may have seen something or have information about the case. We want them to contact us if they have any ideas or thoughts, he said. Elam refused to comment about whether the prime suspect had been questioned. Elam declined to say whether rape was attempted or committed. The task force believes there to be a motive, but no comment about that, he said. He stressed, when we feel the case is secure and we've done everything possible from the task force point of view, we will turn the case over to the state's attorney. He added it will then be up to the state's attorney whether to seek an arrest warrant from a judge or an indictment from a grand jury. When asked if he thought a conviction can be obtained without an eyewitness or confession in the case, Elam answered, Physical evidence doesn't lie. People can lie. Elam said the police have remained relatively silent about the investigation over the past year because they believe there's only one way to handle a homicide. Very little publicity. Too many lives can be damaged by mere speculation. And we wanted to minimize that. There's been a lot of hours put in this case, Elam said. It's never been out of anybody's mind. We've lived with it every day. He added family members of the victims have had to think about the tragedy even more than the police. 
but they have been very supportive of police efforts throughout the investigation. Two photos accompanied the article. At the top right, an image of the large Victorian home sat by the snow-covered tracks in South First with the fire hose snaking across the ice-encrusted street. And a copperous creek fire truck sat out front as firefighters stand in ankle-deep snow in the front yard. Another firefighter hovers atop a crane high above the old wooden home's peaked roof as he prepares to chop a hole into the attic to vent the fire so rescue efforts can begin. Just below, an image of Donna Jean Tompkins in a tuxedo. And above her crisp bow tie, a broad pearly white smile and wide illuminating eyes that indeed light up the room. As another Midwestern winter wraps up, bleakness is slowly replaced with plain oddity. If any Fulton County residents were paying even the slightest attention as to the back page headline, which read on March 5th, 1994, simply Dawn Bull. The same writer, John Froling of the Canton Daily Ledger wrote, Don Bull, 62, is seeking public office for the first time. He said he always has been interested in the sheriff's position. My campaign is based on economics and the lack of initiative. Budgets are out of sight, Bull said. Bull said if he were sheriff, he would not accept more than the annual state-mandated salary. I want to make the sheriff more visible, accessible, and active to all people in Fulton County, he said. Bull lives with his wife, Joyce, at 540 Holly Street. They have four children. Accompanied is a photo of Don, bald on top, silver hair on the sides above prominent ears, with a face of a stern, stoic man and a solid grimace, a bulbous nose, and behind a pair of standard-issue, man-of-his-time and locale, thick-lens spectacles, a set of glaring eyes fixed firmly on the lens of the camera before him. Two weeks later, March 16th, 1994, the headline in the Peoria Journal Star stated, Sheriff Dan Daly won the Democratic nomination for Fulton County. Lewistown. Sheriff Daly will probably breeze through the November general election unopposed. Racking up 4,480 votes and defeating challenger Don Bull of Canton, Daly faces no opponent in his quest for a second four-year term. Daly, 40, of Cuba, said he plans to implement forcing jail inmates to compensate the county for medical expenses incurred while they are housed in the Fulton County Jail. Bull, 62, a retired member of local 649 operating systems, said he had recent experience as a legal investigator and hoped that voters would have been swayed by his good common sense, though he had had no police experience. Bull garnered 247 votes. That recent experience as a legal investigator, conducting his own investigation into the crime scene for the case in which had just put one of his four children away for eight years with a conviction of criminal assault. After all, what would a father not do for his child? And on Wednesday, July 13th, 1994, one year and six months to the day, 
staring out from the front page with disheveled hair, scruffy beard, a bushy mustache, full face, and chubby cheeks, fattened with jailhouse slop, with a detached gaze, a sun's mugshot below a front page headline that proclaimed, Bull indicted on Tim Counts and Tompkins murders. Lewistown, a former Canton man now incarcerated in a state prison near Mount Vernon, has been charged with the murders of a Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter in early 1993. Donald R. Bull of Big Muddy Correctional Center was indicted on June 30 by a Fulton County grand jury on seven counts of first-degree murder, two counts of concealment of a homicidal death, and one count of aggravated arson. The indictment was suppressed until Tuesday in an attempt to keep news media away from Tuesday's hearing, said Fulton County State's attorney Ed Danner. Bull is accused of murdering Donna Tompkins, 30, and her daughter Justine Tompkins, on or about January 13, 1993, at the victim's apartment at 365 South First Avenue, and then setting fire to their residence. Court officials said today some of the murder charges against Bull alleged he knowingly and with the intent to kill, manually and mechanically asphyxiated both victims. The seventh count of first-degree murder alleged he murdered Donna Tompkins while committing an act of aggravated criminal sexual assault against her. Justine Tompkins is not believed to have been sexually assaulted according to law enforcement. Authorities won't discuss what, if any, physical evidence they had against Bull. The investigation has been lengthy because police wanted to examine thoroughly any and all leads in the case, Danner said Tuesday. Bull's parents were at the arraignment, and his father, Don Bull, a failed candidate last year for Fulton County Sheriff, yelled, Hide your face, son. Cover your face. As Bull was led into the lobby where a news photographer waited. His hands chained before him, Bull sat with his head down as Circuit Judge Charles H. Wilhelm read the indictment. Bull shook his head once. The charges carry a possible sentence in the State Department of Corrections for up to life without parole or a potential death penalty. Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said in a press release Tuesday he will decide later whether or not to seek the death penalty. An image centered on the front page featured an impromptu photograph of three-year-old Justine lying belly down on a blanket, resting on her elbows as she clasps a bottle in her hands. Her light brown hair was straight and silky, bangs cut straight across her brow, a charmed smile, and a flood of glee in her delightful, innocent eyes. The image to her right, that same photo of Donna in bow tie, her own bright, beautiful wide open eyes, alive to the world before her, yet entirely blind to the fate that would soon bestow her and her little beloved daughter, Justine. Peoria Journal Star, July 14, 1994 Crime and Punishment in Canton The Subheadline You can bet they aren't passing out free Donald Bull t-shirts in Canton today. And if he were to flee up Route 24 with a gun to his head, the roar from the crowd might be, shoot. The article states, Yes, these are harsh words for a man who has been accused of two murders but not convicted. 
We have no idea how strong the evidence is and acknowledge it's possible that Bull had been wrongfully accused of killing Donna Tompkins and her three-year-old daughter Justine. But if you're human, and most of us are, then how can you look at the colored picture of mother and child on Wednesday's front page and be anything but furious? How can you read about the sexual assault of Miss Tompkins and the brutal end to two promising lives without wanting punishment? How can you read about Bull's record of crimes against women and be anything but outraged? The most recent of these occurred two months after the Tompkins' deaths, and he is serving an eight-year prison sentence for it. It's his second prison sentence for aggravated assault on a woman. On one other occasion in 1991, he was acquitted of a sex crime and apparently charges were not brought in a 1992 case. Hindsight wishes that the jury would have reached a different conclusion in 1991, and the prosecutors might have built a better case in 1992, but there's no evidence of any system failure here. So let's hope that the system works now. Let's hope Bull gets a fair trial and justice is done. Let's hope it takes place free of public picking of sides like the O.J. Simpson case has inspired. And most of all, let's remember who are the victims and not misplace our sympathies. July 16th, in a handwriting entirely void of the hardened, troubled, and that overly masculine essence of Donnie Bull more often not articulated when describing him, let alone while painting his portrait for subsequent prosecution. In an effeminate curvature, Donnie described his thoughts in a flowing blue ink on lined paper from a cell just days after his indictment. Russ, amen. As you have already heard, some real big shit has hit the fan. And they're trying to blow it all over on me. Listen, I shouldn't have to say this to you. But I didn't and I've never killed anyone, nor did I start any kind of fire. They're setting me up here, man. I don't understand why, and right now, I don't care why. All I know is they're talking about giving me death for something I didn't do. All I want to do is prove I did not do this, and I'm going to need everybody's help here. Please, Russ, I need your help, and all I'm asking for is the truth. Russ, from what I remember, is this. On or about October 31, 1992, me and you and David picked up my couch from the store. I'm not sure of the time. Took it to Donna's and put it inside. I got the key and money right out of the mailbox. We put the couch inside. And if I remember right, we couldn't find the lights. We used lighters, didn't we? We locked the door back, and I put the key right back in her mailbox, like she told me to. And we left. Went back to your place, right? Didn't we have that party that night? Because if we did, it would have been October 31 that night. This was my couch, 
I cleaned it and stored it at Wright's. A soft blue arrow directs the reader to turn to the back page, where he continues in a cursive permissive to an outpour of desperation. Russ, this is very important, and if you can think of the time, let me know. Man, you gotta help me prove the truth of these matters. I don't know what David's doing, but I am sure he remembers this. Russ, please contact me very soon, alright? Let me in on what's going on with David. Write to me. Donnie Bull, N38170. P.S. What they're doing to me, Russ, very wrong here, man. Help me prove they're wrong. With mostly truth and some luck and God's will, we will. All I'm asking for is one half a chance. I cleaned and stored this couch at Wright's and it was my couch. Signed, Donnie. Spelled D-O-N-N-I. P.S.S. Or call my dad and tell him you will help me. Within another image released of Donnie in newspapers, a man in a buttoned white Oxford shirt with a stiff collar, too small to be buttoned around his thick neck, flanked by two officers with starred badges upon their chests. Donnie's neck folds, his chin nearly resting on his own chest, hands shackled, lips clenched, eyes virtually shut, squinting in what looks like mortal pain, glaring down at the ground in shame. Donnie's sight is limited to where his shackled feet scuff the ground, yet not entirely blind to that which fate would soon bestow him. I end this last chapter of the second leg of our journey, part two, with a quote. The journeyman himself, that wise and timeless philosopher of life's path, Homer once uttered in his Iliad. Why so much grief for me? No man will hurl me down to death against my fate. In fate, no one alive has ever escaped it, neither brave man nor coward. I tell you, it's born with us the day we are born. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic.
Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.